Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu slash business. From the Sorrell College of Business, I'm Judson Edwards, and this is The Double Dome, a Business Geeks podcast from Troy University. It's time again to put our heads together. So welcome back to another episode of The Double Dome. As business geeks over in the Sorrell College of Business, where I'm the dean, we're always looking for something new to learn. And do I have a topic for you? Welcome to Southeastern Championship Wrestling. Innovators in televised wrestling personality profile. That's right. This time we're talking the business of professional wrestling. Whether you're watching it on television or lucky enough to be there in person, all you're concerned about is the match in front of you. But what we're going to talk about is all the work outside the ring that makes it possible. For all of those out there like me who grew up in Southeast Alabama watching professional wrestling, my two guests today are true legends of the sport. Charlie Platt has one of the most recognizable voices in radio and television from the Dothan market. He was the voice of Continental and Southeastern Championship Wrestling. Hello, I'm Charlie Platt. Welcome once again to Southeastern Championship Wrestling. Ric Flair, once again, the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. And professional wrestler and owner of Continental Championship Wrestling, who comes from the oldest wrestling family in the United States of America, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Come on, bring it in. All you women sitting at home, you ain't dreaming. You seeing me live and in living color, the prettiest thing that's been on your television set ever. Charlie and Ron met with me in the studio a little over a year ago, and things really got wild from the start. So let's jump right into the podcast, put our heads together, and hope we avoid a headbutt. We appreciate you you having us, Judson, and you did an awesome job preparing for this event because of your vast knowledge of the professional wrestling business. Thank you very much for inviting us to come out and uh, talk to students about uh, what the real world's like. Maybe touch a little bit for, for our listeners about you know some of the early challenges to being an entrepreneur and what you learned through the wrestling business. Well, I started wrestling in 1970. I wrestled in the state of Florida for most of that first five years. After five years, I decided I wanted to own my own company. And I, I picked Knoxville, Tennessee. Oddly enough, uh, it was a one Tennessee territory. Uh, territories are basically uh, different parts of the country that are owned by different people that have wrestling on a nightly basis. Back in the, starting in the 50s, there were territories across the United States and, and in some other countries uh, around the world. So um, I got mine started in 1974, my first wrestling company. 
uh, named it Southeastern Wrestling because it was in the Southeast. And I eventually uh, spread out to about five more television stations than the one I started out with and was able to make a territory out of what was just one town of Knoxville, basically. It took me about almost a year to get to the level where I had six nights a week where I was running business. But it, it, was, a, uh, it was a real challenge for a 26-year-old boy. Uh, and I say boy, I, I thought I was a man, but I really yeah. found out pretty quickly that the business world is, is not, it's not, it's cruel at times, I guess <laughs> is a good way of putting it. Uh, and, uh, and my first year was extremely cruel for me and a whole lot of different things happened. But that's what uh, makes uh, businessmen uh, get up and go. I mean, if you want to make it happen, it's, it's just going to be up to you. If you're an entrepreneur and you want to head out in that direction, you better be prepared to be a jack-of-all-trades because you just don't have any idea what you're going to have to do to make it happen. And, Charlie, I know you, you've spent many years in the broadcasting business and radio. You know, Charlie, you were great at, at what you did. And, I, you know, I know that Gordon Soley was someone that we had in Georgia and then when I go back and watch the Southeastern episodes, I, the first thing I thought was, man, Charlie is awesome because he was the perfect kind of, you, you had the, you had all of the, I would say vernacular or discussion about, it was serious, it was straight. You know, you called it like a, a real sporting event that was just really connected with the viewers. And you could tell that right away. Well, the thing is, people appreciate being communicated with on a on a one-on-one -on -one basis and not throw something that goes over their head or under their feet. There's like the head on and make them feel at home. And that's what Southeastern did for years. I mean, from the TV show to the arenas, to the way the guys treated the fans. Uh, you know, I, I've seen some of them break kayfabe and little kid would walk up and want an autograph from the, the biggest heel in the world that usually, you know, would get out of here, kid. Kind of sound like Ron, you know. <laughs> but that person, knowing that that child wanted some attention and quality time, would kind of ease over the side, reach down, sign an autograph, pat him on the back, let him go. I've seen Archie do that. Yeah. And he's talking about Mongolian Stomper, uh, I can't imagine too many children running around wanting Andre's. <laughs> I mean, the Stomper's autograph, but uh, you know, uh, he was—he was—he was a scary individual, even for me as a wrestler. But, but uh, yeah, it's—we tried to make it a family event. It's what it was, and it, because we were there every week, we became members of a lot of families. The people just really, after a while, they see these guys on television. And we wanted not to be the star that they had no way they were ever going to be able to meet, shake their hands, or get an autograph. We wanted to be just the opposite of that. We wanted to be out there and easily accessible, especially the baby faces, the good guys. Uh, they, they were, we made a point to make sure that they treated people really, really nicely. And, uh, and occasionally, as Charlie says, those bad boy heels they would find a way to ease over to the side and then uh, secretly be a good guy uh, because it was, all, it was important. Uh, we, it was part of that business itself and the way we wanted to run it. 
Ron, you know, one of the things that I that I think about as you as an owner of a business like this is, is as a business school dean, I have about 100 full-time faculty that, that I deal with and have to manage. And when I think about the wrestling business, I, I look at you and think, how in the world do you manage a group of wrestlers? And, and you know, so you when I when I think about the HR issues that I have to deal with, sometimes I can't even imagine what you've dealt with uh, when it comes to the wrestling side. So, yeah, you know, how what was your kind of your mentality of building your team or building the, I guess, on the business side? If you think of like a corporate, the corporate environment, the corporate culture of southeastern how'd you how'd you do that well it's kind of kind of like in running any other business uh, you have to have the proper employees uh, in wrestling your employees are not normal employees they're they're wrestlers and some of them are wild and crazy and there's a certain amount of management that goes on but uh, i think uh, if you handle your company and you're at the top of a, of a business you set the tone for what goes on and I tried to be that type of person, and I wanted to make guys feel comfortable. It made it gave me the opportunity to get wrestlers that I probably couldn't couldn't have gotten uh, if I hadn't have been doing business the way we were. A lot of different territories, guys' businesses and wrestling, so the owners, some ran territories that guys had a great time and enjoyed themselves. Uh, that was southeastern. Uh, I mean, you go in the dressing room and everybody's having a great time. Uh, they're looking forward to the next night, and they, they they had a short trip, and they're going to get home early. There's a lot of things to be happy about. They're going to get a good paycheck at the end of the week. Uh, all of that thing, all of that works into it. But uh, the tone is set from the top, and I tried to, to let them know. If they watched me, I felt like if they really paid attention to me and how I handle things, they'd have a good grasp of what I expected from them. Obviously, sometimes you have to talk to guys. Uh, they're wrestlers and they're wild and crazy, and sometimes they're going to go too far. And I would, in that case, go and have a conversation and let them know where they stand and, and what I wanted and what I expected. But uh, overall, uh, I think we had probably some of the best wrestlers in the world wrestled in Southeastern and Continental. Uh, and we took a lot of these young guys that are going to go on to be huge names, Hulk Hogan and Arn Anderson and Brutus the Barber Beefcake and Honky Tonk Man, and all of these guys came through Southeastern as young men, and we put them on the right path, and I feel real good about that. And when they left, they, they left better people than they were most of them when they came. I want, I want to add to that, in, in Arn Anderson's first book, and excuse me, Arn, I can't, think of the title but Arn paid a tribute to Ron and I've heard other guys that worked in the territory say the same thing Ron in the wrestling business there were a lot of promoters that would shortchange you on your payoff Arn Anderson in his first book paid tribute to Ron by saying he'd always heard that and he'd seen that but the best paycheck he ever received from Southeastern was the last week he worked here and I think knowing all the guys that I do and the guys who came here through the years, Ron was probably at the top of the list as far as payoff men were concerned in the industry. They got a fair shake on their money, and uh, if they did their best and uh, behaved their best, they were, you know, really, really, really successful. You know, one question that I've wanted to ask you, Ron, and, and Charlie, you can speak to it because you were there. Kind of the end of days of territory wrestling 
as someone on the business end of that, what were the signs for you? What did you see in those late 80s that made you say, hey, I think it's time for me to get out of this and go try something else? Well, as most as most people know, I guess, uh, you know, one man is all, wrestling is all one man basically anymore. And it's uh, Vince McMahon Jr. and the WWE. Back years ago, there were 20, 30 NWA territories that uh, were tremendous places for guys to work. And once Vince got into a position, he was happened to be in the Northeast. He's in the, the media capital of this country, New York City, basically, or right there by it. And he had the opportunity to, to get that national television. And when he got on national TV, he decided that he didn't want to have competition. He wanted to be the man. And uh, instead of going and finding his own talent, developing his own talent. Uh, he started going and picking on the territories. And he would go into the territory. Uh, for instance, the Von Erichs who were in Dallas, mm -hmm. he goes in there and he gets the ultimate warrior out of, out of there. And, and in my territory, as an example, Hulk Hogan was working for me, he took Hulk Hogan out of my territory, uh, along with Honky Tonk Man. Uh, along with Dr. D, David Schultz. I mean, there's a number of people. And what his, his approach was, he didn't just want to own it. He didn't go and buy out wrestling promoters, which would have been the, the, uh, the real way to do it. You know, just go to him, he had the money, and just say, look, I, I'm going to have national TV, and I, I really don't want to compete with you. I, I want to buy you out. Uh, he instead went and bought the stars. He went and bought their stars, and then it wasn't long before he started coming back and competing against them and using those same stars that they had developed over the years to compete against. I thought that was horrible. And once I saw that that was happening and the fact that he was beginning to take over territory after territory, I knew it wasn't long until it was going to be his turn to come after me. And uh, I just decided I needed to get something for it rather than to have a walk away from it for nothing, having spent years to build those businesses and those companies. And, uh, had, and to be honest, build a lot of his talent, guys that he made more money with than, some of, than anybody. Hulk Hogan probably made him more money than anybody. So, you know, I mean, a lot of those guys I had developed, I didn't want to be in the position of having to go into my building and see him running across the street in another building, and he's got half of my guys that I built for him on that card working against me. Guys didn't like coming in and working against me either. I remember the first time they came in Birmingham against us, uh, they brought Hulk Hogan, they brought Honky Tonk Man, they brought people that we had made stars out of. Uh, we ran in Boutwell Auditorium, hold about 8,000 people. They ran across the street in the uh, Civic Center, Birmingham. It, ran, it probably had 15,000 seats. And uh, that night, we beat them. We, actually, we drew thousands more than they did. We sold out in Boutwell. <laughs> and Hulk Hogan came over, Honky Tonk Man came over after their matches uh, to look at a full building. Boutwell was packed, and they had 3,000, and we had 8,000 in Boutwell. And they were like, gee, Ron, what, how did y'all do this? 
And I said, well, we knew you guys were coming, you know, and we had to compete. I said, we did a two-ring battle royal that we normally charge a dollar more for. I said, we took a dollar off the ticket prices <laughs> and had a battle royal. And I said, we're going to compete, guys. I mean, when you come back to Birmingham, you better be ready because we're going to be here and we're going to give you a hard time. I just didn't, didn't, I could see the writing on the wall, basically, and it was the time to get out. Ron and I have had this conversation before. I think one of the things that was the downfall of the industry, and I'm going to put part of it on Ted Turner and, and the Crockett's, they hired people to come in and run a business that they knew nothing about. They were script writers. They were not wrestling people. And going back to what made it so successful 60s, 70s, and 80s in the South, there's one common thread, the Welch family. It was all trained by members of the same family or people who worked for the same family and put out a quality product. By the time we got to the end of the territory days, it was production. Mm -hmm. And it's even more that today. We didn't have scripts. All I had to do was sit at the desk. Ron was wrestling Bob Armstrong for the Southeastern Championship. We were going to be in Mobile's Expo Hall. I would start out the interview with Bob. Bob would do part of his spill. I said, wait, let's hear from the stud. Ron would give his spill, come back to me. I'd look at the clock, close it out on two or three minutes, whatever we had. And we didn't know what a teleprompter was. We didn't know what a script was. <laughs> we just did it. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it wasn't just us. Uh, back in that time frame, that's the way it was done around the country. Uh, nowadays, it's, it's, it's a show. Uh, it's entertainment. And when I watch it, I, I have a hard time watching it because it's just not the same. Uh, they, don't, they don't train the same. They don't wrestle the same. Uh, it's all a different product anymore. And, and uh, you had a good point, you know. The Vince came from the Northeast. His daddy always liked big guys, uh, Gorilla Monsoon and, and Andre and, you know, the bigger the better. Uh, if you had a big body, it didn't make any difference if you had no back wrestling background whatsoever. If you didn't know one wrestling hold, it didn't care. He didn't care. He just, he wanted these big guys in his company. And his son grew up watching that style, and that's kind of the direction he went. That's why Hogan became his star. Hogan was never a great wrestler. I don't think anybody ever watched him would say, wow, what a super wrestler he right. is. You know, he just didn't, he didn't have it. Uh, but uh, it was a different time. It was a different time frame. I, I don't think he would have had a real problem dealing with people in the South if there had been somebody else that, uh, I had the opportunity to get my own national program in 1985. And I went to New York and then I had CBS talk to me about, would give me a national show. And I didn't do it because I felt like that if I couldn't get the NWA, all the NWA and all the territories to cooperate and give me some talent, uh, my idea was if I had been Vince, I would have done it totally different. Rather than take over the territories, I would have made them all bigger. I would have brought their stars into that one television program, had a tremendous show because the NWA talent was so superior to what Vince senior and junior were doing up there in New York, we would have blown them away. It would have been, right now, there would be 
40 or 50 or 60 territories in America and 3,000 wrestlers still wrestling rather than 45 and, uh, and, and, and no house shows anymore. People can't see a live event anymore. It's all television oriented and it's all scripted. It's, it's just a totally different product. It makes, uh, makes no sense. If you're an old time, my granddad would roll over in his grave. <laughs> if he saw it, so would my dad. Buddy, I They would both you. just go, wow, what have they done to wrestling? And, and, and you, know uh, it? It. you know what killed it? This is a lesson in life. One word killed professional wrestling. What's that? Well, you're the host of the show. You should. You are a dean of the school of business. What always is part of a man's downfall? Ego. Greed. <laughs> Close. Greed. Exactly. And had it gone Ron's way, can you imagine? Yeah. And in the in the early stages of Georgia Championship Wrestling, there was a time when Jim Barnett was controlling the company, and Jim. Barnett would let other stars off of his TBS show, which was the big cable deal back then. They would come into your territory and work, and they would draw. But he would let these guys come in and take bookings in other places, and everybody benefited from that generosity. Yeah, yeah, that would have been the whole concept. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's going to go to one show, one company, it could have been a totally different business at this point. Ron, did, and, and Charlie, did you see when you moved your show to Birmingham and went to Continental to the big arena-style television shows, did you, what, were your, what was your thoughts about how that compared to the studio wrestling? Did you feel that's what you needed to do to compete? Just what was kind of your mindset behind that? Did it work like you hoped it would? Yeah, I mean, the reason we did it is uh, we were doing a great studio show in Dothan, uh, and it had been there for many, many years. But Vince was in these big arenas, and I kept watching it when I would watch the shows. And originally, when he first started, I watched his shows some because I, I want to know what my competition was doing. Right. And I, I, I understood the big building and the, t the quality of the program with 8,000 people rather than 200 in the studio. We make a lot of noise. 200 people are real truly wrestling fans that are into it make a tremendous amount of noise, but it's not like being in a big arena. So I, I made that decision to go to the big arena and to have a show that would be able to compete with this show. And, you know, Boutwell was consistently anywhere from five to 8,000, and that's a lot of people. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great atmosphere. Dothan did suffer because Dothan was so many years the home of, of television wrestling. And I think the Dothan houses were harder to draw after that than they were before. You agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, people, wrestling was a family-oriented event. Local mm -hmm. event. And they're local, yeah. yeah. And, and, and people knew that, that, hey, you can go out to Channel 4 out here and you can see this wrestling program being recorded. And uh, they were proud of it. Uh, you know, the, Dothan was known as the television town in the, in the southeast and, and then Gulf Coast even before mm -hmm. it. It had been that way for many, many years. And I think it, yeah, it had a, definitely a bad effect on Dothan because it lost that, they lost their notoriety in a way. They, they did not get that, boy, we really used to come in town. We spend night here. Uh, before televisions, we would come into Dothan, no matter where we were, and do programs. 
and book our town so that you're not too far from Dothan. You're going to Dothan. You're going to spend your night in Dothan. I wanted my guys to be here. So we were seen in the community everywhere, out eating dinner and breakfasts and, and in, in the nightclubs after the matches were over. We were a part of that city. And once we went to Birmingham and the production up there, that all ended for Dothan and the Wiregrass area. It just didn't get the attention that it had gotten before. I think, too, in, in working a lot of those shows, there was something about the intimacy of the television studio, even with the interviews, that they felt like, even if we were doing inserts for, say, Montgomery, Birmingham, or other things, they it still lost just a little bit of its flavor of Civic Center, Montgomery, because you were coming from the same place every week, which was Boutwell Auditorium, and you could customize better, a little bit better on your studio shows than you could on the big building shows. Yeah, yeah, and and you had that that crowd in the background. Southeastern Wrestling out of Knoxville. I begin on my studcast. I've found two gentlemen that have the actual video, the actual uh, audios of the commercials, uh, the interviews with the wrestlers. And to hear that crowd react, uh, you didn't get that reaction when you pre-recorded those shows. There's nobody in the studio. You don't get any reaction. But that difference was when you did a no Dothan show and you're talking about what's going to happen here in Dothan, and then you make that interview, Ooh. that studio audience, it just, it just gave the whole show a different, it, it upped the level of everything. Now, you got a little bit of that when you went into the big building in Birmingham because we got smart and decided rather than pre-cutting a lot of interviews, we were going to put generic interviews in the actual program. Okay. Once we started doing that, Different. then it, 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 it jumped things. It made everything better. And uh, I think it's a local. People want to be a, they want to, they want to be a part of the local product. And that local product for Southeastern was in Dothan, Alabama. And for the, it's the best little wrestling city in America, in my opinion. Uh, I, I don't think there's a better town. It, any town that'll draw 5,000 people with its population every Friday night in a building that had a dirt floor at one time and no air conditioning <laughs> in no. the summertime. Think about that. Yeah. You know, how do you get 5,000 people to come to a building that's 120 degrees inside? Uh, and and it just, it's amazing what, what we were doing back in those days. Well, as we kind of wrap things up, I, I just want to say how much I appreciated both of you coming to the university to speak to the students. And anyways, thank y'all both. I really do appreciate y'all coming to Troy. Thank you. My guests for this enjoyable episode of the Double Dome were wrestling legends Charlie Platt and the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. We all survived the podcast and lived to fight another day with very few to minimal injuries. I hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe to The Double Dome wherever you get your podcast and give us a rating in the iTunes store. That, in addition to sharing on social media, will help other people find us. The Double Dome is produced by the Sorrell College of Business and Troy University. This episode was produced in the studios of Troy Public Radio by Kyle Gassett with help from Joey Hudson. So until the next episode where we can put our heads together and rumble again, 
I'm Judson Edwards, and this is The Double Dome. Support for The Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu slash business.